you guys doing well? Everybody, everybody feeling good after an hour's worth of extra sleep? Anybody, anybody need that? No, parents? Yes, yeah. A couple of you. Anyways, uh, well, we're glad you're here. My name is TJ. One of the pastors here. We're uh, beginning a brand new series today called The Dilemma, and uh, it's a study on the book of Daniel. So if you have your Bible, if you want to turn to Daniel chapter 1, we're going to be hanging out there today. Uh, and really, this, this series was, was based off of uh, this idea of, or this question that I think all of us are having to answer right now when it comes to life. And, and it's this, is how do I stand firm in God's truth and love people well in a culture that is becoming more and more ungodly all around me? Like, how, how do I do that? And is that even possible? And, and I think the book of Daniel gives us some, some, some traction on how to do that. And, and really, I learned a lot about this from, from a pastor that has been very, very influential in my life and in our church's life. His name is Pastor Chris Hodges. He pastors Church of the Highlands in Birmingham, Alabama. In fact, when we were starting our church, they were one of the churches that supported us to get us off the ground to, to be what we are today. And so he wrote an incredible book called The Daniel Dilemma uh, that, that, man, has been a great study aid to me and helped to me. And, and man, I read it while I was gone this, this past couple of weeks, and it's incredible, life-changing. And so I, I encourage you to pick this book up. Does somebody want this book? Uh, somebody, anybody? Uh, where? Where back here? Back there, somebody. Okay, there we go. Somebody back there got it. Somebody raised their hand back there, so they got it. So uh, you got to keep your head up here at Coastal. You never know when a book will hit you in the face. I mean, <laughs> and we try not to do that with the Bible. So anyways, uh, <laughs> anyways, if you don't know much about the book of Daniel, let me give you some, some background so you get a good idea of kind of what's happening uh, the book of Daniel is, is an interesting book because the first chap, six chapters of Daniel are, are really stories. They're history uh, of what was happening, and, uh, and they're pretty famous stories. Daniel in the lion's dead, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fire. If you have ever watched Veggie Tales as a parent, you've probably seen some of those episodes. And so you're like, oh, I, I know those stories. And then the second half, chapters 7 through 12, are, are prophecy. And so... The Bible is written kind of interestingly because it's not written in chronological order, which means uh, the Bible isn't written as things happen. They're kind of grouped into different areas. And so the first five books of the Old Testament are books of the law written by Moses. It's, it's all the things that you're supposed to do. The next set of books are, are uh, the history of Israel. And so it's the history books. The set after that is, is the books of poetry. It's Proverbs and Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And so it's those real poetic books. And then finally, the last section of the Old Testament is the books of the prophets. And they're categorized into two groups. There's the major prophets and the minor prophets. And they're not major prophets because they did something more or something better. They're just major because the books are way longer. And so uh, the minor prophets are just, just shorter books. And so Daniel is kind of thrown into while being a history book, it's also a prophecy book, is thrown into the prophet section. And I think the Holy Spirit did that intentionally so that we wouldn't just see it as a book of history, but we would see it as, as a, a prophetic book, that it would be, in essence, a game plan of what's going to happen in the future if we're not aware and how culture is going to impact 
our lives. And basically God was saying, hey, I want to give you a game plan or a battle plan because this isn't something that just happened once in society. This has happened over and over and over again. And if you're not aware and you're not prepared, you're going to lose this you're going to lose when it comes to facing culture in life. And so he says, man, you better be aware. And Daniel lived this absolutely incredible life in spite of his circumstances. And that means that in spite of no matter what you're going through, God has still got a plan. And so what was happening in the time uh, of Daniel is that Israel had rejected God. And, and God said, anytime that Israel rejects me or my people reject me, they're, they're going to be, they're going to come into some difficult times. And it's always interesting that as you look throughout time, as people reject God, God always takes his hand of favor and blessing off of them. And you think about our culture today, we are founded as a nation, one nation under God. And we're moving further and further and further away from God. And, and, and there's probably only a little bit of time before we, we move past that scope where God says, hey, I'm going to take my hand of favor and blessing off of you. And so the prophecy was, if you don't follow God to the children of Israel, that uh, you will be what the Bible called exiled, or you'll be overtaken by another group of people. And so that's exactly what's taking place as we begin in Daniel chapter 1. Uh, a group of people named the Babylonians have come and overtaken Israel. And just some, some kind of cool geography, if you want to know where Babylon would be today, it would be modern-day Iraq. And so Daniel chapter 1 uh, starting in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So they not only defeated the Israelites, but they took the Israelites into captivity. And the Bible says that they stayed in captivity for 70 years as slaves in Babylon. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put the treasure in the house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, and that's an important name. We're going to see Aspenaz all throughout the, the book of Daniel, uh, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. So they're taking all the Israelites in as slaves, and the king recognizes and goes, listen, we're not just going to make them all go work in the fields or whatever. Let's take the smart ones. Let's take the educated ones. Let's take the ones of noble background. And I think they got something more to add to our culture than just being slaves in the fields. And so it says, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing an aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Sounds a lot like me, you know, just... <laughs> Why, I don't know why y'all are laughing. Doesn't sound like some of you. No. <laughs> it says, uh, he was to teach them <laughs> the language and literature of the Babylonians. And, and this is interesting here because, uh, in other words, he's saying, hey, we want to indoctrinate you into our ways, our thoughts, our culture. Uh, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. And some of you are like reading that, you're like, man, if I'm captured and I get chosen in that group, that doesn't sound like a bad deal, man. I get taken in, I get fed food. But what you got to understand from being a Jewish boy, that that, that would have broken every Jewish dietary restriction that a young Jewish man would have. Not only that, but that food had been sacrificed to idols. So uh, to a person that was 
coming up from a Jewish background, that would be considered dirty food. It'd be like throwing it on the floor and having some cockroaches run over it and then eating it in our culture. And so for them, it was like, this, there's just like no way. And so what we start to see is the indoctrination and the effect of culture into a generation that is the younger generation trying to transform them. And, and, and let me just say this. If we don't understand the time that we live in, and if we don't understand what God's word says, and if we don't look at this playbook, the book of Daniel, as a, a reality for our lives, culture will have the same effect on us that it was having on them, and we won't even know the difference. Because culture has got an agenda. Whether you recognize it or not, culture has got an agenda. And some of you are like, well, TJ, what, what, what does that even look like? How, do they do, how does that do? What is that, how does that take place in my life? Well, let me, let me show you. In verse 7, it says, The chief official gave them new names. And, and so you got to understand that names are a sign of, of ownership when it comes to the Israelites. And, and every single one of us, we have a name that our parents gave to us. And it has some sort of significance. It has some sort of meaning. And, and some of us are living up to that significance and to that meaning and to their aspirations. And then some of us are not. We're following some different names that we've allowed to uh, get put on us in life. And this is what I know. We're all going to have to answer the question of, of, of what name are you following? Are you following the label that culture has put on you? Or are you following the label that God has placed on you? We all have a choice in that. And this is a big deal because every single one of us live according to the name that we identify with. And it says, so they gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Culture has an agenda and culture has an effect. And culture's agenda, what it wants to do, if you're taking notes, number one, is culture wants to change your identity. It wants to make you believe something about you that is absolutely not true about you. I grew up in a home, my parents, uh, they gave me the name Timothy James McCormick Jr. That's my name, that's, that's what's on my birth certificate. Uh, and, and when I was younger, the, the reason they gave me that name, one, it's my father's name. Two, my name means to honor God. That was the goal of my parents, that my life would honor God in that. And as I was growing up, I realized that honoring God didn't get me popular. Honoring God didn't get me influence. Honoring God didn't get me friends. And so what I started to do is all of a sudden I started to shift to I want to be popular. I want to have friends. And so I, I started playing sports and I started partying and I started drinking. And, and during that time of the beginning of my high school years, I got renamed. I got given a nickname and it was T-Mac. Uh, partly because I played football and truck people and I was like a Mack truck. And uh, I'm just telling you how that's how I got it. I laid some dude out on a highlight film and that was the end of it. And, uh, and, and so I started to identify that. I walk in a room, they'd be, T-Mac, you know, and, and I, I love that because that's who I was. In fact, I was on a pastor's retreat this, this past week and one of the guys that I grew up with, when he saw me, he's like, T-Mac. And what's interesting is, is I looked up the name Mac because I want to know what does that mean? And my name, Timothy, means to honor God. The name Mac actually means uh, to resent authority. So check this out. I was designed to honor God. That was his agenda for my life. That was his purpose for my life. In culture, what do they do? They renamed me and they, they said, no, no, no. You need to resent authority. 
put me in the exact opposite direction of God's intention for my life. I'm so passionate and, and, and so thankful to God that, that he helped me identify my true identity. And one of my goals as a pastor is to help you discover who God created you to be. It says, you were, before you were formed in your mother's womb, he knew you, which means he has a plan for you. And we want to help you discover that. We don't want you to walk through life being identified by what somebody else or society has labeled you by. We want you to discover who God says you are. But culture has got an agenda. Watch the names of these, is, these Jewish boys. Uh, they gave Daniel. Daniel's name naturally means Come on, come on, pro presenter. There we go. Daniel, Gary, God is my judge. That's what, like God, God is the ultimate authority in my life. And then they renamed him Belteshazzar, which means lady protect the king. They gave this dude a girl's name. <laughs> and we laugh at that. We're like, oh, that's so funny. But, but check this out. Almost in every single pagan culture, and you can research this for yourself, there's been gender confusion. And the reason that is isn't because the enemy wants to mess with our sexuality, it's because he wants us to mess, he wants to mess with our relationships. He wants to get them as jacked up as possible. Check out the next one, Hananiah. He gave, it's, Yahweh has been gracious. Oh, God is so good. That's what his name means. And then it, they renamed him Shadrach. I am fearful of God. Like, I tremble of God. So we go from this, this like, man, I, God is awesome to, like, I'm terrified of God. Why? Because the enemy isn't just trying to destroy your relationships. He's just trying to destroy your spiritual life as well. Check out Michelle. Who is what God is? Check out the confidence. Who is what God is? God is awesome. God is great. And they name, renamed Michelle, Meshach. I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. He goes from this confidence to cowardice. And then Azariah, Yahweh has helped God. When God is on my side, man, I can accomplish anything. And they renamed him Abednego, servant of Nebo. See, he's not only just trying to mess with your relationships, he's trying to redefine your future as well. Listen to me, church. We've got to let God put the right label on our life. The creator knows exactly what the creation is for. Don't let somebody who didn't create you define you in life. Because they don't have a clue your intended purpose. Only the creator knows that. See, when culture shifts, you got to know exactly who you are. You're not who the world says you are. You're who God says you are. Verse 8, it says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. And I love this because we live in a society where when something doesn't go right, what do we do? We attack them. Just look at Facebook. Somebody says something, what do you do? Like, you see it all over the place. Just get off social media. It'll help you, I promise. <laughs> but, but Daniel does the exact opposite thing. What does he do? He goes, and I love this, he goes and asks permission. He goes, listen, I got some standards. I got some values. Would it be possible? Do you think, if it would please you, sir, really honorably and respectfully, but culture doesn't want us to do that. What culture wants us to do, number two, is he, culture wants us to compromise our standards. And a lot of us have felt this over the last few months, few years, 
We feel this pressure from society and this pressure from culture that's coming at us. And a lot of us, we're in a dilemma as a Christ follower. We, we really are because we're not bad people. We really do want to serve God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But culture puts so much pressure on us to do this, whatever this is, that all of a sudden our moral relativity starts to move. And let me define that a little bit because I, I, I'm using some terms here. What that means is you look at your life and you go, well, I'm not that bad and that person's worse. And so this was the moral line. And because this isn't that bad, this is going to become okay. This is now the moral standard and that's bad. And what happens is we continually define that a little bit. Culture continually pushes us out little by little. And before long, the moral line is all the way over there. And we're over here and we're going like, how did that happen? Why? Because it always wants us to compromise our standards. And let me just make this statement, and I think it'll, it'll help some of you. Uh, God's standards, which is God's word, God's word is not against you. So many people think, well, it's just a whole bunch of rules and regulations to make our lives miserable. That's what God wants to do. Listen, you following God's rules does nothing for him and everything for you. Listen, when you're going down I-95 and there's guardrails on the side there, you all have seen those guardrails, the road isn't like, yes, I have guardrails. Why? Because it does nothing for the road, but it does something for you, doesn't it? So you don't go over the edge. Exactly what God's standard does for your life as well. And it's good for you. So it's important to know that when culture shifts, what we have to do is we have to reaffirm the convictions that we have because there should be some core values and some core convictions that no matter what culture throws our way, that we say, there's just no way I'm going to be swayed from these things. Now, I, we're going to talk about in this series some things that I think that we need to stand firm on and not be swayed. Verse 9, it says, Now God had called the official to show some favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king. So basically, this guy's terrified of his boss, like some of us, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And so he's like, listen, I understand your dilemma, but I'm not willing to risk my life for you. It says in verse 11, Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants. He goes, test us. Give us this test. Let's see what happens if you give us the opportunity in life. And I just want to tell you right now that culture is going to test you. This is the first of many tests. One of the things you'll see over and over again in the book of Daniel is that these young men were tested over and over and over again. And listen, if you, uh, if you stand firm in one test, let me just guarantee there's going to be another test around the corner from you because culture is creating a confrontation with you all the time and it wants to know can you pass the test says so please test your servants for 10 days give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see so he agreed to do this and tested them for 10 days write this down culture will always create a confrontation some of you are feeling this right now at your work. You're, you're feeling the confrontation. Some of you parents are feeling this at school and things that are being taught and family values that you have. Some of you are feeling this in your faith. We all feel this confrontation at one point or another. In fact, I remember 
when I, I first gave my life to Jesus. I, I'll never forget the first major kind of confrontation with culture I had. I, I got radically saved and uh, I, I was partying like crazy. I had a girlfriend. I was supposed to go out on a date with her that night. And then I had a party scheduled in my house for that Friday. My parents were out of town. And, and so I had all this stuff. And, and I remember when I got saved, I came home and I said, Mom, I, I, I think I need a Bible. And so my mom went to the store and she didn't know which Bible to buy. So she bought like five of them because there's a lot of different versions. You know, you just don't know. And so I looked at them and then there was a green one. And I was like, I'll take the green one. And so I took that one and I didn't know where to start. You know, the Bible is intimidating. You, you start reading in the front end. There's some weird stuff like nail foreskins on the wall. Like, I don't want to do that. That's, and so... I'm serious, that's in the Bible. Like, you, there's interesting stuff in here. Uh, and so I, I was skimming through, and I saw the name James, and I thought, man, my name is James. You know, that's part of my name. I'll start there. And I started reading the Bible, and for the first time, I, like, this book came alive. And it's convicting me and challenging me. And, and I, I felt like God was really telling me, go break up with your girlfriend and, and cancel that party on Friday night and have a Bible study instead. And so I called up my girlfriend and I said, hey, uh, I'm sorry to do this to you, but Jesus told me to break up with you. <laughs> Not the way to break up with a girl, just to learn from my mistakes. <laughs> It's a bad representation of Jesus, but it was true. He did tell me to do that. And then, uh, and then I called up my friends and I said, hey, I'm canceling the party. Instead, I'm having a Bible study. Come on over still. And uh, Friday night rolled around and uh, I was there by myself. <laughs> no, nobody came to the Bible study. So I had a Bible study with me, me and Jesus and I didn't really know what I was studying. So it was great. Um, and I remember I, I made this drastic change, and everybody said, oh, man, that, that's not real. He's just, he just becoming one of those Jesus freaks, and they started talking about started saying all these things about me. And I remember it was the first time that I had this confrontation, like all of, everything that I identified with in life and everything that I'd wanted in life was in all of those relationships. Because that's what everything in culture told me I needed. And, and all of a sudden, I, I have this experience with God that is, that is changing me internally. And I'm, I'm going back and forth. What do I do here? Because if, if I don't go do what they're doing, then they'll reject me and I'll be all alone. But if I don't follow this, I'm going to miss out on this incredible thing that I think God is doing in my life. And I remember I made the decision to follow God, and I did. I got rejected by all those people. And it's in those moments that we want to respond with anger and hurt and frustration. But like, listen, when culture shifts, you got to respond the right way. And I made a choice at that moment, man. I'm just going to love those people anyways. Let me tell you something. I almost ended up winning 50% of them to Jesus Christ over the next year. Because I didn't just become a Jesus freak. I just love people where they were. And I think it's so important that we respond the right way because honestly one of the reasons I want to do this series and talk about this is because for so long the church has responded the big church has responded the wrong way we've lived on one of two extremes and in their extremeness they're just they're, they're just wrong one extreme is very dogmatic and it's this extreme of I'm right and I know I'm right and you're wrong and so you're wrong and I'm right and I don't care if you go to hell because I'm right And here's the thing, I don't think God called us just to be right in life. He called us to be effective in life. And if we're right and ineffective towards helping people, then at the end of the day, we're wrong based on how Jesus lived. 
Then on the other extreme over here, we have people that are going, man, God is love and he loves everybody. Doesn't matter who they are, what they've done. When God, when they find Jesus, they don't ever have to change. Jesus just loves them and wants them. They can stay that way. They can live any way they want. That's fine. That's dandy. And what they started doing, they started changing God's word saying, man, we're, and they think to themselves, we're more loving than God is. And they're right on some part of that. God is love. But they go so far that they become wrong. And we can't move God's truth around that way just so it fits our paradigm. We try to do things in the name of love and just throw it out there. So how do we balance all that? Because in both the scenarios, let's just be honest, there's truth. There's rightness. But in their extremes, they go too far and become wrong. And I think that's what's so great about Daniel. Is that he stood firm and he loved so well that in a completely foreign and pagan culture, he ended up having influence for generations. You know what? He's not the only one to do it. There's this guy named Jesus that rocked everybody's world. About a 800 years later. You think about Jesus. He was total perfection. Completely righteous. Yet living with skin. He was fully and completely God. Holy to the max. Yet prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors sat at his feet. And liked it. And in the midst of that, he never compromised what he believed. He never compromised what he said. And yet, every single group felt loved by him. There's a verse in uh, John 1, 14 that says it great. It says, the word, referring to Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. He is full of grace and he was full of truth. See, truth is, is God's standard. It's, it's God's word. In fact, John 17, 17 says this, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And as a church, man, if you come to DNA, you hang out with us long enough, you'll find out, Man, I absolutely love people. I love people probably too much. And, and I tell my wife, and I say this all the time, I'll do anything short of sin to win somebody for Jesus. And, and I'll think about sinning most of the time. I mean, if that's, that's going to push them over there, because I love people. And, and it's just like, it's my natural, like I want people to experience Jesus like never before. But at the same point, man, as a church, we will never go away from God's truth and his word. 
It is infallible. It is perfect. We're not going to sway from it. We're going to love people compassionately, but we're not going to throw away God's word in the name of love. We're going to stand on it. We're going to believe it. And listen, culture may change, but God's word never changes. It says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But I don't think we can just stay right there because it, 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 like then we end up on way too far of an extreme. So on the flip side of that is God's grace, which grace is God's favor, which basically says he favors you when you're not favorable. It says while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus loves sinners. He loves you so much that he doesn't want us to stay the same way either. And so he shows this amazing amount of favor by giving us grace, which is this favor from God that we can do nothing to earn. You can't serve enough. You can't give enough. You can't memorize enough scriptures. You can't come to church enough while we'd like you to do that some more. Like you can't do enough to earn God's favor. In fact, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not to be a reward for good things we have done so that none of us can boast about it because otherwise we'd all be taking credit for this. And God, I believe, is calling us as a church to live with grace and with truth. And I think that this is a difficulty for Christ followers because we've been told we've got to be on one extreme or the other. And see, the problem with that is, is without truth, we're corrupt. We just end up being carnal, worldly, selfish people. And what God's word does is it calls us to a place of change and, and repentance. And what it does is it takes us from our natural desires because my natural desire was to be popular, which means I had to compromise things. And when I started looking at God's truth, all of a sudden I see God has a different direction and purpose and plan for my life that I need to redirect some focus on. And the only way I would see that was by getting truth. But at the same time, without grace, we're all condemned. Like, you can't earn your way to heaven. I, I, I watch this happen all the time at funerals. I've done a lot of funerals. And, and particularly when people don't know where their family member stood on faith, they always walk up during eulogies and they'll say things like, man, he was a good man. Or, you know what, she was a good woman. And what they're doing is they're going, well, they did a little bit more good than they did bad. And, and hopefully that sways the pendulum in their favor to get to heaven. Like, like we're doing a zero to a hundred with Hitler being zero, like you're the worst person in the world and Jesus being a hundred and we hope to fall at like 52% so we can qualify. But here's the problem with that kind of thinking. The way we qualify for heaven is we got to be perfect in and of ourselves. God says, I require a hundred percent perfection. You're like, well, then we're all disqualified. Exactly. It's by God's saving grace through Jesus Christ that we have that. That's we need the grace of God. See, without truth, what has become worldly? And honestly, we have no answers for the world. We don't. Because listen, every single person in this room, including this good-looking bald guy up here, got problems. And the only way to fix those problems is God's word and his way. It's the only thing that can heal those problems. Listen, I need God's truth for my marriage. I need God's truth for my attitude. I need God's truth for my language. We need God's truth. 
But without grace, we become judgmental in life. And what happens is we look at our sin and we start to compare our sin amongst other people. Well, my sin's not as bad as them. And all of a sudden, we start putting ourselves up on a pedestal and thinking we're better than other people. And unfortunately, that's why the church has gotten a bad rap. Because we think, well, I'm awesome. And you're really not. You just have forgotten how forgiven you were. You just forgot. You just forgot what it was like to be lost and then found. See, truth without grace is just mean. And grace without truth is just meaningless. But grace and truth, man, that is good medicine. And that can heal your soul. And it can change the world. You know, when Shayla and I moved here eight and a half years ago, we didn't move to South Florida to start another church because South Florida needed another church. Listen, there are amazing churches all throughout South Florida. Church by Glaze, amazing. I love Pastor David Hughes. Uh, Calvary Chapel, Doug Souter is killing it. Uh, go out to Spanish River in Boca. You can go down to Victory in West Boca. I mean, you can go to Coral Ridge right now. I mean, there's just incredible, incredible churches. I, I love the local church. But when we did move here, I believe that God sent us here because he said, hey, I want you to be a church that embraces a balance of grace and truth for every single person. You're not going to be on one extreme or the other. And that's the kind of church that people need today where they get both at the same time where we could come in and not act like we got it all together, but realize we're all jacked up, we're all messed up, and we're in need of a loving Savior who can change and transform our lives daily. The only difference between between some of us is we got to this hospital before other people. It's the only difference. You're like, man, they got it together. They just been here a little bit longer. Listen, the longer you stay in, the better you should get. See, grace, what it does is it invites you and I to be free. It says no matter where you are or what you've done, like, listen, you are invited to experience this, but check it out. God's truth sets you free. We don't change God's word. God's word changes us. And there's an amazing story in the New Testament that is told in John chapter 8. And Jesus is, is teaching out in the open. And it says in verse 3, it says, As he was speaking, the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, this is interesting to me because why in the world were the religious leaders of the day at the place where an act of adultery was taking place? What's up with that? You know, like, isn't it interesting how we're always good at finding other people's sin, but very inept at discovering our own? They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? And I think that that's the question that we're all facing today. And that's the tension that we have every single day. Because culture is coming to us and going, hey, what do you say? Where are you going to stand? Where are you going to be on this issue, on this problem, on this aspect of life? 
It says they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Basically, they're giving Jesus an either or. Either Jesus, you're going to choose truth, and the law of Moses says to kill this woman, or you're going to choose grace, and you're going to break the law. So which one do you choose? And the world every single day is giving us an either or. What side are you going to be on this side or are you going to be on that side? And I believe what God is telling us is we don't have to choose either or. We can have both and. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. And, and we don't have a clue what he wrote. Uh, you know, s- s- scholars don't have any, any idea. I mean, it's interesting to me because I, if I was Jesus, I would have just looked at up, up at him and been like, dude, I know what you did last night. Why are you bringing her here? I Better check yourself before you wreck yourself, bro. I'll tell everybody what's going on up in here. Jesus would have gone gangster on him, but that's not what he did. He said they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again. And he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. And when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. And it's interesting, scholars think it was the oldest who slipped away first because they had the most sin in their life. They're most aware of their past. I actually, my thought is, is that after Jesus stooped back down, he started writing the names of their mistresses in the sand. He's like, Sally, <laughs> Margaret, <laughs> Jennifer. <laughs> you know, he just... He just hooked him up. Uh, we don't really know, but that's my theory. Uh, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? I love this because Jesus confronts our sin and our past in the most honoring, respectful, non-condemning, loving way. He's not there to embarrass you. He's not there to make you feel judged. He's there because he wants to help you. It says, didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Grace, go and sin no more. Truth. Jesus gives her grace and truth. And I think he would say the same thing to us today. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Says, I know what you did last night. I know what you did last week. I don't condemn you. But listen, I've got a better life for you. Church, I believe that we're in a season of life where a lot of transitions happening, a lot of things are taking place. That God is calling us to hold high the truth of God's word while at the same time freely giving the amazing grace of Jesus Christ to every single person around us. Would you guys bow your heads and pray with me? Father God, we come before you and I thank you that as we stand in a confrontation with culture and its agenda, God, that we would recognize that there is some truth and some grace that we can live in. It's not a choice of either or, it's a choice of I want to live with both ends. And some of you out there, you, for a long time, all that you've heard is that God is all about rules and regulations and don't do this and don't do that. And God's not really about that. He's about truth and grace. 
He's about love and relationship. And he wasn't about setting up a set of rules. He's about creating an opportunity for you to know him personally. And he loves you so much that over 2,000 years ago, he gave his life on a cross. Substitutionally, while you were jacked up, while you were messed up, just like I was. Says, I don't care what other people have told you about you. I've got something better for you and I'm willing to die for it. Maybe you're here today and you've never experienced that kind of love. You've never experienced that kind of grace. You've never experienced that kind of relationship. Or maybe you're out there and you've experienced that in your past, but you've kind of fallen away from it today. You need to come back to that grace. You need to come back to that truth with every head bowed and every eye closed. If that's you, we'd love to pray with you. If you just slip your hand up on the count of three. One, two, three. Go ahead and slip it up. People's hands going up all over the place. No shame in this game. Go ahead. Anybody else? Pastor Josh, would you lead them?